This podcast is a presentation of Nags Head Church. Stay tuned and find us online at nagsheadchurch.com and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Nags Head Church. 1 John chapter 2 is where we are today. I've been a Christian. Um, I'm 62 years old. I became a Christian when I was 10, so I've been a Christian over, oh man, over half a century. <laughs> that makes me feel really old. Um, and, uh, and, and, and in that 50 years that I've been a Christian, over 30 years of that, I've been involved in pastoral ministry, whether it's pastoring young people or, or leading the, the, the entire church as I've done here for forever, seems like. Um, and in those years, those 50 years of um, being a believer, um, most, most of the, those 50 years, I've seen some amazing, wonderful things. And I'm so thankful to God for it. But I've also seen uh, tragedy in the lives of believers, in the lives of Christians, in the lives of partners of the church. I've seen too many, in my estimation, too many Christians fall away. Some fall away from the faith altogether. They just walk away. and, And even I've heard people, I don't believe anymore, they tell me. Some fall away from the faith. Some fall away from fellowship with God and his people uh, from the church, pulled away from Christ by the world. And we're going to talk about what that means this morning because John says that's one of the, the two big things that pulls Christians out of fellowship with Christ. One is the world. And then I've seen others who are lured away from what the Bible teaches and the foundation of their faith lured away by by false teachers. And I don't guess anything grieves this pastor, this shepherd more than when sheep in the flock are carried away from the fold. I don't think any pastor, any shepherd hurts more when he, than when he sees that happening. And it was happening. It was happening in John's day here as he writes right at the end of the first century. And a little bit earlier, it was happening. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Galatian churches in Galatians 1.6. He said to these churches that he had helped establish. He knew these people. And he said to them, writes in, in the very beginning chapter of his letter to them, he says, hey, I am amazed. Now, let me stop right there. Most of the time when in the church and in Christianity we use the word amazed, it's a good thing, isn't it? We're amazed at the grace of God. We're amazed at his love. We're amazed at his forgiveness. We're amazed at this fellowship and this family that he's put us in uh, as believers. We're amazed. It's a wonderful thing, but here it's not wonderful. Paul says, I am amazed that you are so quickly turning away from him, from Christ, who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not the gospel that saved you, not the gospel you were taught, not the gospel upon which I thought you were founded as Christians and believers and churches. You're turning to something very different. And he goes on in that chapter and he says, listen, even if an angel comes and proclaims a different God to you, don't believe it. Let him be accursed, he said. Anybody preaches anything different to you. And they were being swallowed up by false doctrine in those churches. He was amazed that they had been taught the truth, yet they're following a lie. And in this passage in 1 John, John's going to tell us that about the two main forces of opposition against you 
and your fellowship in Christ. That's what this we've been reading about and studying about up to this point is this whole concept of fellowship, maintaining that, that high level of fellowship with Jesus where we, as John said, we walk like he walked. We're going where he leads us, where he takes us, and we're sticking close to Jesus. But that's not such an easy thing to do in this world and in that time as well. And John says there are two things that work against you and against me all the time to pull us away from our fellowship with Jesus. And he's going to talk about those two things. One is, he said, we, we, we follow, we love the world. And the second is we believe false doctrine. And he winds up this passage before he goes into uh, what we have as chapter 3, uh, talking to his, his, these Christians, these children of John's, as he calls them, in the faith to remain. He says, remain in the Lord. Don't be pulled away by the love of the world or by antichrist false teachers. So if you're taking notes this morning, and I hope you are, protection number one, he's going to give us several protections that God's given us. Protection number one is warning. God warns us of dangers. He warns us of dangers. Verse 15, follow along with me while I read. Do not love the world. And I'm going to give you a definition of that in just a moment, what he means by the world. Don't love the world or the things that belong to the world. If anyone loves the world, let me just say time out right there. By John saying that, if anyone loves the world, he's saying it's possible, is it not, for Christians to love the world. He didn't say it was impossible. He's writing here to believers, and he says sometimes this happens. If anyone of you, if any Christian loves the world, love for the Father, God is not in him. One love pushes out the other, he says. Love for the Father is not in him. For everything that belongs to the world, and he says, here's what I mean by the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride in one's lifestyle is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world, with its lust, is passing away, but the one who does God's will remains forever. The first danger is this, loving the world. He's warning us against loving the world. And he says, the world wants to pull you and me away from fellowship with Christ. And John's pretty clear about this in what he says. And one of the things I love about John in this, in this letter of 1 John is, John just gets right to it, you know? He really does. And he just says what needs to be said. John says, don't love the world, don't love the things that belong to the world. But we ask, okay, what's he talking about? The world. He's talking here about, not about planet Earth. He's not talking about the, you know, this planet we live in, live on. He's talking about the system, if you will, of the world that runs this world. And I'll explain a little bit more about that. He's talking about the philosophies and the priorities that don't include God, that don't include Christ. Jesus said it this way, and John, some of you have this verse memorized, John 6, 33. Jesus said, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, as opposed to what? Everything the world has to offer. Seek God, seek his righteousness, because they're very different from what the world wants you to seek after. And one reason some drop out of the faith, they drop out of church, very simply, I'll just say it like it is, because they can't let go of the world. They won't. It's like they're holding the world in one hand and they're trying to hold on to Jesus with the other and you can't hold on to both. One of them's going to cause you to let go of the other. 
And too often, too often I see people say, well, you know what? I just love the world and everything it gives me more than I love my fellowship with Christ. Now, they don't say it in those words. They say things like, you know, we're just really busy. You know, you know, we just, we, we're just finding enjoyment in so many things out there, and, and, they, and they've lost their passion for Jesus. Now, that's not to say you can't enjoy some things in this world and, and at the same time be in love with Jesus. You can, you know. I, I hope so, you know. Um, but, but I've seen so many people that, that just drop Christ and go for the world and the things that it offers. Um, you can know something. How do we know what's of the world? John says, um, you know, well, here's how. And, and the world are things, again, that contradict God, that contradict his, his word. And, the, you know, and here's, the Bible might say to us, and it does, avoid this, whatever it might be, because it's wrong. Does the Bible say stuff like that? Not at me if you, yes, it does. Shake your head if you disagree. The Bible says, avoid some things because they are wrong. Do you see that in the scripture sometimes? Yeah, stuff, you know, don't steal. It's wrong, right? God has set up in his word for us some guardrails. We'll talk about that in a few moments. Avoid these things because they're wrong um, and because they contradict God. And the world comes along, and we might say as Christians, well, you know what? I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm not going to participate in that. I'm not going to think that way anymore. God's changing my mind and the way I think because those things are wrong. And someone from the world will say, who says that? My preacher said, God said it. You know, he read it to me from the Bible. Well, you know, that Bible, that's, come on now, that's so old-fashioned. That's so out of date. That's so irrelevant. And they'll throw things like that at you and me and say, who's, who's to say it's wrong? Come on. And, and, and you might say, well, God says to me in his word, here's my standard, Rick, for you to live a healthy, godly life. And the world says, no, no, no. You live however you want to live. After all, it's your life, isn't it? But for the Christian... My life, your life as a believer in Jesus, here's the, here's the, just tell it like it is. It's no longer my own to live however I please because the Bible tells me I've been bought with a price. I've been paid for with the price of the blood of Jesus Christ. So I am not, the Bible says, my own. For me, Paul said, to live is what? Christ. Christ. So I don't have that right as a Christian now. I'm no longer, as Paul talked about, or, or Tom talked about last week, I'm no longer a slave to those things. I, I'm, I belong to Jesus, been purchased by God at the cost of his blood, son's blood. So how do we recognize the world system? A great parallel story to this whole thing that John says, love of the world, lust of the flesh, so forth, is the story of Eve in the garden in Genesis chapter 3. It just perfectly plays it out. John says here, here's how we recognize the world's values. First of all, its desire is to satisfy my flesh. By flesh, it means the opposite of my spirit. By flesh, it means those desires that are part of my fallen nature before I knew Jesus Christ, that pull me into sin, that want me to sin. It's desires to satisfy that. Eve, when she goes to the garden, she's in the garden, and evidently she was hungry that day. Time to fix something for dinner. Adam's asking me, what time is supper? 
So I'm going out looking, and she's out looking around the garden, and, uh, and you know, she's hungry, and she picks this fruit from this tree to satisfy her flesh. And you've heard, you know, for example, you've heard the saying, have you not? Um, you've heard this. I heard, I heard this, read this the other day. Sex sells. You ever hear that in the advertisement TV? And if you want to get people's attention, put the picture of a scantily clad, clad woman up on the billboard and everybody, all the guys anyway, who drive by, what, what, what was that about? You, and you lady, I'm, I don't want to leave the ladies out, but you, you all know Tom Selleck. Remember, you know Tom Selleck? You know, gosh, man, he makes my wife's heart melt. And, um, you know, before he was a famous, before he was Magnum and gotten into all, you know who he was? He was the Marlboro man. In the magazine, in the advertisement, selling Marlboro cigarettes. Why was he there? Because the ladies are flipping through their whatever magazine it was. Who is that? You know, because it sells. The lust of the flesh. And it's true. Um, that's the philosophy of the world. And by the way, what does it mean by flesh? Flesh is used in the New Testament as the opposite of the spirit. It's desires to satisfy my flesh. It's focus, secondly, on, is one on looks appealing. So she's out looking in the garden for something to eat, and she comes across this tree that God's already said, don't eat the fruit off that tree. Don't mess with that tree. But she looks at it, and she says, I don't get it. You know, and then the devil's talking to her, the serpent's talking to her, and she says, I don't get it. You know, that's the best-looking tree in the garden. It looks great. The fruit's got to be the best in all the garden. Look at that tree. Its focus, secondly, is what's, what is on what looks appealing. Third, its highest authority is humanity. So the serpent convinces her that she did not have to obey God. Do you really think God meant that? God said, do you eat that fruit that you're going to... Do you really think God's going to let you die? It's just you and Adam. He, you, know, you really think that God went through all this to create all this planet and put you here in charge of everything, and just because you eat one little piece of one fruit, it's all over with for you? Do you really... Come on, do you really believe that? And he said that to her, and... And he said to her, you know, if you eat of that fruit, you will become like God. Its appeal, its highest authority is humanity. So she eats the fruit because he told her, you don't have to obey God. Obey yourself. Let your conscience be your guide, Eve. We need to be careful with that. There's a, I heard, it was at a meeting last year and, we're talking kind of the went around the room and, and what's your kind of what's your faith, what's your denomination? There are a whole lot of us there and, and we went around in different denominational, you know, we're this and we're that and the other. And went to one person, he said, I'm 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 a humanist. Well, what does that mean? That means my God is me. That mankind is the highest at the top of the heap. There's nobody beyond him. Uh, that's scary. Um, when we, if we believe that, and that's this whole thing in the pride of life, the highest authority is humanity. John says, if we love the world's system, our love as Christians for God is displaced, and we're not loving God, is what he says. Why is that? Because the world is the antithesis of the Father; they're opposites. They can't, 
mix. You could take this to the extreme, and I don't think that that's the purpose of it, but you could take this to the extreme that if we do anything other, you, so what are you saying? If I do anything other than come and sit in church and sing psalms for enjoyment, that I must be worldly? Is that what that means? And the answer is no. If I eat something that is really good tasting, is that satisfying the flesh? Because I might want to go back for seconds. Is that satisfying the flesh or is that against God? To eat something that's really, really good. No. The flesh here is referring to the carnal desires that we have that cannot be satisfied, listen, without sinning. Without sinning. So it could be, I'm just going to talk for myself here, who's trying to lose some weight and trying to keep my blood sugar down. By the way, I'm wearing a pair of pants I haven't worn in several years because I could finally button them, you know, they fit. But for me, the lust of the flesh could be that second piece of pie, could it not? Because I don't need that. You know, that's not good for me. That's not healthy for me, but I want it. You know, so there's this battle goes on. But typically it's for a whole lot of other things beyond something like that second piece of pie. Be careful. God has established guardrails for us to keep us from going over the edge. Gail and I, when we were in Colorado in November, one of the things we did was we drove up Pikes Peak, 14,000 some odd feet at the top. And there are stretches of that road as you're winding around that mountain, going up to the top of that mountain. Any of you ever been there, up there? You know what I'm talking about. Stretches of that road where there are guardrails, but there's most of the stretch of that road, there are no guardrails. And I'm in the driver's seat, and she's over on in the passenger seat by the edge of the road. It's just a two-lane road, and there's no shoulder in some of these places. And she's looking down there, and she's getting queasy. And, there, and she finally says, can you please get over into the other lane? I say, yeah, but there are people coming down the mountain. I can't drive in their lane. i got to drive over here. She was scared we were going to go over the edge. And the fact that there was some ice on the road didn't help the whole situation either. God has given us guardrails to keep us from going over the edge and making a train wreck of our lives. You see, when we love the world, which is outside of God's will, John says when we love the world, we stop loving God. So when someone says, yeah, I know, but I'm living like this, but I still love God, John says, no, you don't. Don't say you love God if your life is consumed with loving the world. If your life is living, lived in disobedience to God, you're lying to yourself, you're lying to others. And here's what John says about the world. He says it's temporary in verse 17. The world with its lust is passing away. It doesn't last. It doesn't. Why put your stock in something that's going to be here today and gone tomorrow? William McDonald, one of my favorite commentators, said this. He said, when a bank is breaking, smart people do not invest in it. When the foundation is tottering, intelligent builders do not proceed. Concentrating on this world is like rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. So wise people do not live for a world that's passing away. Secondly, John says the other thing that pulls Christians away from fellowship with God is being deceived by false teachers. 
These Christians here that John writes to obviously have already been taught that an antichrist would come prior to the second coming of Christ and pretend to be Christ. Look with me at verse 18. Children, he says to them, this is the last hour. And as you have heard, antichrist is coming. Even now, many antichrists have come. We know from this that it is the last hour. They, these antichrists, they went out from us, meaning at one time they were with the, involved with the church, with Christianity. They went out from us, but they did not belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. However, they went out so it might, that it might be made clear that none of them belongs to us. Now, he said, Antichrist is coming, capital A, Antichrist, meaning that person who's going to come and claim to be Christ and so forth before Christ's coming. But he says, before he shows up, many Antichrists have come, and they are still showing up even 2,000 years later. They are the false teachers who teach false doctrine about Christ and teach a false gospel. When John gets into chapter 4, and we'll be there in a few weeks, He's going to spend more time on what that means. But since the completion of the Bible at the end of the first century, when we have no more scripture written, the apostles all died off, there have always been theological differences and distinctives among Christians, have there not? Some are minor in the grand scheme of things, and some are major, major enough to split churches and to form new denominations. And some are so far out in left field that they're heresy, meaning they, those beliefs are not part of the faith. So here, even in what we would describe as orthodox, evangelical, Bible-believing Christianity, which we believe at Nags Head Church, we fit into that group, that crowd. There are, um, even here, some extremes in beliefs. You know, for example, popular debates today amongst Bible-believing Christians. Some believe that salvation is a choice of my free will. When I believe in Jesus, it's because I decided to follow Jesus, and it's about free will. Some say that's, that's what it is. We have free will. Others believe, no, it's not a choice. It was already chosen for you from before the foundation of the world. You didn't really have a choice in it at all. And I would say the truth is probably somewhere in the middle of both of those But even on both of those sides, they still believe in the gospel, don't they? Some believe, for example, that Jesus Christ is going to remove all the Christians from the earth before a period of time known as the tribulation. Before that seven-year period happens, God's going to take us out of here. Some believe that. Others say, no, it's going to happen after the first three and a half years in the middle. Some say, no, it's going to be after the tribulation and before the millennium. So there's all these debates But all those views that I just said, they all believe the gospel, don't they? They believe Jesus saves. They believe he's coming back. And those are not antichrist views. Even though you may disagree with one or two of those views, that doesn't make them antichrist. But you have cults like Mormonism, Unitarianism, Jehovah's Witnesses, who deny the Christ of the Bible and they make salvation a reward, a product of their own good works. Those are false religions. Those who peddle today what's called prosperity theology, prosperity gospel. 
a lot of TV preachers, you know. God wants you to be rich. God doesn't want any Christians to be poor. It's interesting that, you know, Jesus taught exactly the opposite. But, you know, God doesn't want any Christians to be poor. And, and if you want to be rich, here's, here, I'm going to tell you how you can become rich quick. Send me whatever you got. Give, send a seed to me. My $10, $50, $100, dollars Send it to me, and here's my P.O. box and my address. Send it to me, and God's going to do something great with that in your life. He's going to make you rich. Your ship is going to come in. And they spout all that kind of malarkey. It's superstition. It's not biblical. It's not gospel at all. They turn God into a puppet. And so today, false teaching and false preachers are everywhere. And where, where do you think they proliferate? On the Internet. You can turn on the Internet and, and type in just about anything you want to, and somebody's going to teach you about it. With the Internet, any preacher or any so-called preacher can send out his teachings to anyone in the world who will listen. And hey, guess what? It's happening right now, right here. Because what's happening from right here is being taken from that camera into the computer and it's going out to the world. Anybody that wants to listen is listening in on what's happening right now. So the Internet, is it a good thing? Christianity, if it's a good thing, if it's proclaiming truth, but it's not such a good thing if those that are preaching and teaching are just spewing into a cesspool of doctrinal garbage. So John, first of all, warns us of dangers, and we need to pay attention to those warnings. Secondly, protection number two is that he's given us his Holy Spirit. He's given us the Holy Spirit. Verse 20 down through verse 23, you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you have knowledge. I've not written to you because you don't know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie comes from the truth. Who is the liar then, if, if not the one that, who, who denies that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ? This one who denies that, this one is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son can have the Father, and he who confesses the Son has the Father as well. You have this anointing, he says, an anointing. The word anoint, what does that mean? The word anoint refers to the practice of, of taking oil, like olive oil, like, like Samuel the prophet did with young shepherd boy David and poured oil over David's head, proclaiming him God's choice to be the next king of Israel. The Greek word for Christ and the Hebrew word for Messiah both mean anointed one. But the word anoint in the last generation has become very popular and I believe very misused in some Christian circles. I think it's very misunderstood. In a spiritual sense, anointing, like it's used here, is only found in this place and one other place in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians 1.21, and it's being used in both places of us, believers, being anointed by God. He's not talking about Oh, that was an anointed song. No. Oh, that was certainly an anointed sermon this morning, Pastor Rick. No, he doesn't anoint sermons. He doesn't anoint songs. He doesn't anoint churches. He anoints believers. How do we know that? Because he tells us what the anointing is. Now, stop and some of us are going to say, you said anointing was when they poured oil over somebody's head, and that's never happened to me. Has it happened to you? Not me. So what is it? He makes it really clean here. 
explain here. He says, you have an anointing from the Holy One. The anointing that God has given every single one of us believers is the Holy Spirit. The Holy One is Christ. And John is saying to these Christians, every one of you have an anointing, meaning you have the Holy Spirit. John heard Jesus say, John chapter 14, he wrote it down. Jesus said he was going to send the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Comforter to come in and dwell his disciples, John 14, 16, to indwell us. The word indwell is an important word. It means to set up his dwelling place, his his tent, if you will, his tabernacle. But it's a word that carries a little bit more meaning than just to set up a tent. Because if you set up a tent, I used to be a Boy Scout, we would set up tents, and then when the camping trip was over, we'd take the tents down and not live there anymore. The word here for for indwell means to set up his permanent dwelling place. That's an important word, permanent. His permanent dwelling place. So the Holy Spirit does not leave us. He's always within us. In the scriptures, the Bible teaches every Christian has this anointing. So what does that mean? I don't have to pray for it. God, would you anoint me today? God will say, no. I already did. (laughs) I anointed you the moment you accepted my son as Savior. I placed the Holy Spirit in you. Then, and he hasn't left because he set up his permanent dwelling place in you. The moment you trusted Christ, he moved in. It's not some later spiritual experience. It comes with a new birth and is forever. And because of this anointing, John says, because of it, and all of you have knowledge. You have the ability to discern what's true and what's false. Remember, he's just come after talking about the false teachers. You all have knowledge to discern what's true and false. Look at it this way. When a baby is born, it has eyes, it has hands, it has feet, it has ears, it has brains. They don't come later. Those things don't, aren't added on later. Oh, I'm so excited on Facebook. My baby's ears showed up today. We don't post that, do we, mothers? No. Uh, the ears were there when the baby was born. Um, I, I love baseball. I played a lot of baseball growing up, you know, into elementary school and then into high school, played baseball, and I love baseball. And I was born with the hands to hold the bat, the arm to throw the ball, the eyes to see the pitch coming, and so forth. I was born with those things. But when the, when, when the doctor delivered me from my mother there in that hospital and, and, and so, so very long ago, he didn't, they didn't set me into a, what do they call those things they put babies in? incubator or whatever it is, into that baby bed. They didn't, and I didn't look up and say, where's my glove? Give me a ball. Put me in, coach. I'm ready to play center field today. That didn't happen, did it? Why? Because I had to grow and mature to become able to play baseball. Do you understand that? It didn't happen. I mean, I had all, I had the hands, I had the brain, I had the ears, I had the eyes, I had the feet, so forth. But I had to grow and I had to mature. When you were born again, Christian, God gave you at that moment what you would need spiritually to thrive as his child, but you need to grow up to learn how to use all those things. So John tells them, you know the truth. Why? Because the Spirit of God, the anointing, is in you. And the lie they were hearing from the first century Gnostics, the false teachers, 
at that time. They were hearing this lie. Well, Jesus wasn't Christ until he was baptized. And then when he was crucified, he stopped being Christ at that point because Christ can't die. So he wasn't Christ anymore. Yet, if you read the Bible, you know in the Bible that Jesus of the New Testament is the Lord, the Jehovah Yahweh of the Old Testament. He is the Christ, the Messiah, and always has been from eternity. And John says, if you deny the deity that Jesus is God, as do the cults, you deny the Father. Right? Protection number three, stay close to the word of God. Verse 24, what you have heard from the beginning must remain in you. If what you have heard from the beginning remains in you, then you will remain in the Son and in the Father, and this is the promise that he himself has made to us, eternal life. They were being confused about these things. He said, he's promised this. I have written these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. The anointing you receive, the Holy Spirit who came to indwell you, remains in you. And you don't need anyone to teach you. Instead, his anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie. Just as he has taught you, remain in him. What they had heard, he said, from the beginning. From the beginning of what? And he's used this term a couple times already in this letter, and we've already found out what he means. From the beginning of your experience, when you heard the gospel, when you first heard about Jesus and his love for you and that he died for you, rose from the dead for you, and you said, I believe in him as my Savior, that was the beginning for you. What you've heard, the word of God from the beginning, he says to them, the teaching of Jesus and the apostles. And where do we find your bright crowd this morning, a bright group? Where do we find the teaching of Jesus and the apostles? Someone tell me. Here it is, all right? Here it is in the Word of God, in the Scriptures, in the New Testament especially. We get the apostles and, and Jesus. 27 years ago, the first Sunday that I became pastor of, of a small group of Baptists here on this corner, my first Sunday morning with them, I said, listen, let me promise you something. Before we make a decision as a church, before we make any changes at all, before we go this way or that way, we're always going to first ask this question. What does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? Because that determines where we ought to go. Obviously, John's not saying here, don't listen to teachers. What is he saying? Well, why do you say that, Rick? It sounds like that. Don't, you don't need anybody to teach you. Why don't you just go on home today, Rick? He's not saying that because teaching is one of the gifts that God gives to the church. But his point is that you shouldn't be confused. Tom mentioned last week about some teacher said we ought to be confused about our relationship with Jesus Christ. And I thought, how that's about the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Because here in 1 John, we get to chapter 5, John's going to say, no, 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 you need to know that you have everlasting life. Before you get confused, that you shouldn't be confused by false teaching because the, the anointing, the Holy Spirit, will guide you to know what's right and what isn't. That doesn't mean if you have doubts or you maybe feel confused, that doesn't mean he must not be in you. We all come to those kind of points in our lives, I would think. But those gifted teachers in the church, where do we get our gifts to be able to teach? They are spiritual gifts given to us by the 
Holy Spirit. So we work in conjunction with him as he leads us and guides us. You don't need teaching that ventures outside the word of God. Because please get this and write this down somewhere. There is no need for additional truth. I've heard this saying for years and years and years, and just this past week, somebody told me who originated. It was from Harry Ironside, who was a preacher about, about 100 years ago. But part of what he said was this. If it's new, it isn't true. Right? You don't need any additional truth. You don't need any new revelation. This is his book, and the Bible says it's sufficient and it's complete. And one reason the Lord sets up the church with pastors and elders was for, is for the church to be protected from these false teachers. The pastors, the shepherds, become a sort of umbrella, if you will. And you need to keep yourself under the protection of that because outside the umbrella, there's all kinds of stuff out there. It's like a hailstorm. So get underneath the umbrella that God's provided to protect you. Uh, some of you know, because you've asked me, or you've asked one of the other pastors sometime or another about a certain teaching or ministry, and, and maybe we've told you, yeah, that's a good guy. It happened this morning in between the gatherings. Somebody was talking about this particular teacher, J. Vernon McGee. You ever hear him? And, and he was saying, hey, J. got all these teachings on a thumb drive, got this, all this teaching, and he was giving it to a new Christian. I said, that's a good guy right there. He's dead, been dead for 25 years probably, but his teaching is great. Some of you, have, uh, you've heard that from, uh, oh, yeah, that's really good. And then you've come to us, and Rick, I've been listening to so-and-so, and, and, or you ask one of the other pastors, and we'll say, you know what? You probably ought to stay away from that guy because, and we'll give you reasons. And why do we say that? Because it's for your protection. Protection number four, quickly. Be in the right place at his coming. Look at verse 28. So now, little children, John loves these people. Little children, remain in him so that when he appears, we may have boldness and not be ashamed before him at his coming. John believed Jesus was coming back. He had seen Jesus ascend into the clouds, Acts chapter 1. 50 years before he writes this word, he saw it, but he also heard all of Jesus' teaching about his coming back. And he didn't know, John was smart enough to figure out, nobody knows when that's going to happen because he heard Jesus say, nobody knows. And he heard Jesus say, it will be like a thief in the night when I return. So John says, a great motivator and a protection from you and me straying is to be in the right place, in the right frame of mind when Jesus returns because who wants to be caught? How many of you ever caught by your parents with the hand in the cookie jar kind of thing? You know what I mean? You thought they didn't see what was going on, and all of a sudden you heard their voice. What are you doing? Come down from there. You heard them, you know, you got caught when you didn't think anybody saw you. John says nobody wants to be caught doing the wrong thing, loving the world, acting like a non-Christian, straying from the truth, following a false teacher when Jesus suddenly returns. John says that would be a cause of shame, not only for you, but for people like John who have taught us. And so the protection that God offers is this, very simple. If I live with the knowledge, I don't know when he's going to come back, but he could come back today. I mean, he could come back right now. 
Wouldn't that be great? I think every preacher wants to be standing up teaching the Word of God when Jesus returns, hopefully saying the truth. He could come back right now. I don't know when he's coming. So I want to be sure that whatever I'm doing in my life, whatever I'm saying, whoever I'm with, I'm doing what pleases God because he could come back at any moment. And that's a strong incentive and a strong motive and really a strong protection for me to walk with him every day. Be in the right place because Jesus may come at any moment. We're going to come back and recap these in a moment. Our band's going to come right now and lead us in a, in a song, and then I want to come back and finish this up. But let's have a word of prayer. Father, would you take, man, there's a lot of scripture. And I know we hurried through some of this, and, but I hope that, that uh, some of it, most of it, sticks with us. We battle with the world all the time because we live in it. And it's always wanting to pull us away from you I pray, Father, that we would learn to resist the world. I pray that we would learn to listen to the anointing, the Holy Spirit who indwells us and wants to protect us from false teachers. I pray, Father, that we would get into the Word of God and know it as students, be diligent in our study. I pray that we would be aware every moment, man, Jesus might come today. Wouldn't that be awesome? All these things. Thank you for your word. Thank you for John's love for us that he wrote these down. And you included them in the Bible for us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Let me recap real quickly for you. How do we keep from being led astray? I think I have real quick seven things for you. Number one, Find a church that believes the Bible and lets the Bible say what it says. Right? Is that simple? Find a church that believes the Bible and says, and this is what the Bible says, and we're going to go with it. Number two, hold your elders, your pastors, accountable for standing on the truth of the Word of God. If you hear any of us get up here and preach something that's not found in here, you need to sit us down and say, hey, show me that in the Bible. I don't think that's there. Hold us accountable for proclaiming the truth. Number three, and then submit yourselves to those who teach the word. What does that mean? We're here for your protection. That's why the Bible calls us shepherds. When a shepherd says, oh, that sheep is straying out into a bad place where the wolves are, and we say, get back over here. Don't tell us, mind your own business, because you are our business. All right? We're here for your protection once again. Number four, be a diligent student of the Bible. The best way to know the Bible is to study the Bible on your own. What you get here on Sunday morning, 35, 40 minutes of teaching, is, is not enough, not for any of us. Be a student. Get to know the Word yourself. And if you've done those things, number five, don't go looking for the next new thing because they're popping up all the time. And, you know, some of you may have gotten caught up in this. And I remember when I first saw these things, books coming out about there are things in the Bible that nobody understands, 
but we've discovered the code. You know, the Bible code. What do you think? God's let us be ignorant for 2,000 years about the things he wants us to know. We've discovered the secret. Be careful about that. Number six, trust the Holy Spirit who lives within you. He does. And he's, he's not going to guide you into something wrong. Trust him. And seven, live like Jesus will return today. Right? I hope he does. I'm ready to go. I want, I want to go as soon as he's ready to take us. And uh, I hope you are as well. If that thought scares you, come talk with us. This has been a presentation of Nags Head Church. Love God, love others, reach the world.